If you've got a Bible, why don't you go to Leviticus chapter 16. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, really one of the core central parts of the Old Testament. Now this morning, this is a sermon I preached many years ago, and uh, the church that I preached it at was using a different translation of the Scriptures. I only realized this morning on the PowerPoint. So the verses on the slide are going to be in NIV, what I read, but this morning what I'm going to read from the Scriptures from my Bible will be ESV. So we're a bit all all over the shop, but... um, There we go. So Leviticus chapter 16, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm going to read a a long, lengthy passage here this morning, take a bit of time to get through it, but I want you to to get it, Uh, and I also kind of want you to feel slightly overwhelmed by the sense of detail that's involved in this, all right? So Leviticus chapter 16, let me pray and we'll read God's word together. Father, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. We thank you that you're a God who does not remain silent. But you're a God who is committed to revealing yourself to your people, to being near to your people. And I thank you right now, Lord, that even this very prayer is possible because of what Jesus has done. I thank you, Jesus, that you are present right now because of your work on the cross. And Father, this morning, as we look at what it was like for an Israelite to worship you, I pray that you would overwhelm us with a sense of how good it is to be this side of the cross, this side of Jesus, and understand the gospel in its fullness. So please open our eyes this morning. Speak to us. Transform our hearts. Send us out of here. Radically change people for your glory. And those who agreed said, Amen. All right, Leviticus chapter 7, 16. This is the Day of Atonement. We'll see how we go. I'll read as fast as I can, and I might just stop when I feel like it. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that, they may, so that he may not die. For I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen coat on and shall have a linen undergarment on his body and shall tie a linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take two from the congregation of the people of Israel Two male goats for a sin offering and one ram offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, and it shall be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small. He shall bring it inside the veil and shall put the incense of the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat over the testimony so that he may not die. 
He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells within them, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood that is on, its, on his finger seven times and cleanse it and, consec- and consecrate it from its uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of the atoning of, for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present a live goat. And Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall, be let, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments and he shall put on when he and, and shall put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there and he shall bathe his body in water in the holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offerings of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people and the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he shall come into the camp. And the bull of the sin offering and of the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside of the camp. Their skin, their flesh, their dung shall be burnt up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. I might end it there. So, you, I mean, I'm struggling to read that because I'm getting lost in the details, right? There's so much detail in that passage, and my hope is that we'll get our head around a bit of that a second. In um, Easter of 2011, my family and I took a, a holiday back to South Africa, back to the motherland. It was my cousin's wedding. And so my, my whole side of the family that's here in Australia went back for his wedding in Cape Town. We had a wonderful wedding, and it was beautiful for my wife Tash to be able to meet a part of my family that she hadn't met before and after the wedding we decided we would go and stay in my uncle's um, house holiday house which is on a game farm like literally on this huge giant game property and we're having breakfast and there's giraffes like 50 meters away eating their breakfast and warthogs running around and monkeys in the trees it was really cool and one of the things you could do at this game farm was go and play with or pat some baby lion cubs And so my sister-in-law, Kate, was really keen to do it. And we thought, all right, let's go and check out the lion cub. So we went to this little part of the game farm. And uh, you pay a couple of extra dollars to go and play with these baby lion cubs. And I'm I'm expecting, like, maybe, 
you know, something bigger than a cat or maybe like a little puppy, something a little bit bigger than that. And we get there and these lions are like bigger than full-grown Labradors. They're huge. I'm, that is not a baby lion. That's like maybe an adolescent or teenage lion. It's, it was big, right? And uh, we arrived and the lady says to us, look, you can't just go in and pat the animals. I'm like, clearly, have you seen the size of those things? She said, we've well, got to wait till the lion trainer comes and she will take you in. And so we waited for the lion trainer to come and she comes and she, she takes us in and, and there's two doors into this enclosure. The enclosure is probably about the size of this room and she takes us in. She opens the first door and all of us sort of file into this little room and she closes the door behind us and then there's this like little caged off section and, and we're about to walk into the larger enclosure where these lions are. And as she's about to open the door and walk us through, this big, butchy, South African, Afrikaans lady says to us, she says, the three females are fun, but the male is strong enough to take off your arm. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I don't want to go into a lion cage with a lion that can take my arm off. So I had a camera around my, around my neck and I thought, I'm cool. I'm just going to play photographer and I'll let my brother and his wife Kate pat the lions and I'll stand back and take all these photos. So this is a photo that I took of my my brother and his wife Kate. Now for those of you who are Instagram fans, yes, that's Kate from Little Dwellings, the interior designer. She's family. And um, this photo is like, cool, you know, patting, patting the lion, hanging out, cool. But the next photo you'll see as the lion shows a little bit more interest you can tell the body language of my brother there is like, oh, I'm a bit nervous now. The lion's showing interest. Has it had its breakfast yet? All of those things are going through your head. Now, after a while, I was like, all right, it's time to leave. Let's get out of here. Time to go. I value my limbs. And we left. But that experience, I mean, it was a, it was a good experience. It was a scary experience at the same time. But that experience for me got me thinking that experience of being so close to something that is incredibly powerful that could potentially harm you but is a wonderful blessing at the same time. That experience, it seems to me, is very similar to the experience of the people of God, of Israel, as they camped around in their concentric circles around the tent of meeting, around the Holy of Holies, the place where God is said to dwell. It's almost as if the presence of God is a hazard for the people of God. And so as we get to Leviticus 16, you'll see that the, the manifest presence of a holy and perfect God always requires blood and sacrifice to atone for sin. The Day of Atonement is at the center of the book of Leviticus, which is at the very center of the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch. And it really is the very center and high point of all of Israel's worship. This is the most important day in their holy calendar. And my hope this morning as we walk through this stuff is that you will see that Jesus is at the center of all of our worship. If ever the gospel was clear, if ever the the picture of what Jesus came to do was clear in the Old Testament, it's here in Leviticus chapter 16. But before we get to it, I I just want to rewind a bit and fill in a bit of context because it's important to get the big picture story of God. If we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, we have Adam and Eve created in God's image and likeness in the garden, naked, unashamed, fellowshipping with God face to face in his presence. 
And then Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve's sin, they're cast out of the garden. They're cast away from the presence of God. And really, the whole story of the Bible is a story of how do we get back into the presence of God? If you boil it down, that's what the story of the Bible is about, from Genesis to Revelation. And so the tabernacle, the, the temple, the, the early tenty temple that God told the Israelites to build, the tabernacle there is God's way of dwelling, of living, of being present with his people outside of the garden. That's the solution to the problem of sin that came into the picture in Genesis chapter 3. How will they dwell in the presence of a perfect, holy, righteous God without him destroying them? Back in uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16, the problem is highlighted for us because Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, bring unauthorized fire before the Lord and he destroys them. They die. And so here God is calling Aaron to exercise his high priestly duty, but Aaron's thinking, well, how do I do that? I don't want the same thing to happen to me. I don't want to walk into the Holy of Holies and die like Nadab and Abihu did. And so the Day of Atonement is the solution to that problem. A sinful people, a sinful priesthood. How will these people dwell in the presence of a perfect, holy and righteous God? And Leviticus chapter 16 is that answer. The Day of Atonement, or Yom, Yom Kippur as the Jews call it. That will be celebrated 2015, next week, September 22, 23, is the, the day where the Jews will celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They'll take a day off work. It's kind of like a public holiday for them. It's a really important day for them. It's almost like their Good Friday. Kind of like that, that's the, the high point for us is Easter, Good Friday, Christmas. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur is one of their most central, important celebrations for the Jewish people. They'll take a day off fasting, praying, and they will celebrate this together. This day, the Day of Atonement, is very different from the ordinary day-to-day, week-to-week sacrifices that took place in the temple. If you were a Jew and you brought a sacrifice to the temple on any other day of the year, you would take your sacrifice, have your sin atoned for, and go back to work and continue on your way. But on this day, the whole nation was to fast, to pray, to deny themselves in remembrance of what God was doing to deal with their sin. Now, as I was reading that passage to you, you notice it's really confusing. There's a lot of detail. And so I spent as much time as I could trying to figure out what it would look like for Aaron to have to actually do this. I would love to get to a point one day where I can preach this sermon and actually do the things that Aaron was doing, like putting on the garments, take maybe not having a bath in front of you all, that would be weird. Maybe not slitting the goats, the, the necks of animals, but I would love to kind of act it out some way because it's so hard to get your head around this without, I'm a really visual person. I need to see it. I need to draw it. I need, I, so what I've tried to do is walk this through step by step because Leviticus 16 isn't necessarily in all of chronological order. And so I want to try and break it down so you get a picture of the detail of this and what it was like for Aaron to make that sacrifice of atonement. And I've broken it down into 13 steps. So here we go. Step number one, verse 4b, Aaron is to wash himself. Not just his hands and his feet like he regularly would wash himself for all of the other sacrifices. He is to wash himself completely, his whole body, completely immersed in water. That's step number one. Step number two, verse four, he is to take the linen garments and to put them on. Uh, 
linen overcoat, a linen sash, a linen turban, and a uh, a sash around his waist. He's to put all of those things on. These clothes that he's wearing are very different from the clothes he would normally wear as he would offer sacrifices. See, Aaron's clothes were brightly colored. He wore a turban with jewels on it and all of these expensive, ornate things. But on the Day of Atonement, he exchanges those clothes for plain linen garments. These are actually servants' clothes, slaves' clothing. Because as Aaron comes into the presence of God, he cannot come with all the pomp and ceremony of being the high priest. He comes in humility as a servant. That's step number two. Step number three, Aaron is to cast lots over the goats. This is what it says in verse seven. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other for the scapegoat. So these two goats come and they, they let God pick which one is going to be the goat that is, has its neck slit and its blood spilt and will be sacrificed and which goat is going to have the sins confessed over and then led out into the wilderness. That's step number three. Step number four, there is cleansing for the priests. Aaron is to offer the bull for the sin of the high priest, his own sin, and the high priest's household. So what would happen is Aaron would come there. He would have some helpers around him. They would slit the throat of the, of the bull and someone would catch the blood of that bull as it bled out of its neck into a small bowl and that blood would be used for part of the ceremony. So what it says in verse 12. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. That is that moment where Aaron sets foot into the Holy of Holies and steps into the very presence of God. That moment. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. So as Aaron goes into the presence of the Lord, he's got this kind of smoke screen protecting him from peering directly onto the presence of God because God is so holy even at that point. Aaron could die just like that. He is to sprinkle the blood of the bull once to the east side of the altar, sorry, the east side of the tabernacle, and then seven times before the atonement cover. He's to sprinkle it with his finger. That's step number four. Step number five. He is to take the goat as a sin offering for the people. So he's cleansed himself, the priesthood. Now he comes to the people, and he is to take the goat. And he has to do the exact same process, slit the goat's throat, collect the blood, sprinkle it once to the east, seven times in front of the atonement cover. Step number six, he is atoning for the place now, dealing with the sins of the physical building. Atonement for the outer room in verse 16. Same blood rituals, sprinkling the blood once to the east, seven times in front of all of these objects in the tabernacle. Step number seven, he comes out again to the atonement, uh, to, to make atonement for the altar, for the, the thing that they burnt all of the sacrifices on. They atone for the sin of that as well. And the same blood rituals appear at that point, as well as he rubs some blood on the horns of the altar at that point as well. Step number eight, 
The second goat, the scapegoat, is brought to Aaron and he lays his hands on the head of that scapegoat and he confesses the sin of all of the people of Israel over that scapegoat. And then a man who was specifically appointed would take that scapegoat out into the wilderness and he would go out of the tabernacle and then out of the the camp. Israel is camped in concentric circles around the tabernacle and so this man walks the scapegoat out and takes it out of the camp and into the wilderness. And and some, this isn't in scripture, but some tradition suggests that that man would then take the goat into the wilderness into a cliff and push it off the cliff so it would die and not wander back into the camp at some point because that symbolizes sin leaving, sin going, and they didn't want the goat to come back. But whether or not that actually happened, we don't really know because it's not in the Bible. So the, um, the man takes the scapegoat out into the wilderness, step number eight. Step number nine, Aaron the high priest goes out, changes his clothes, washes himself and gets dressed into his normal high priestly gear or with all the jewels and colors and the special get up. He gets dressed in, back into that one. Step number 10, there is burnt offerings of the ram and the fat from the sin offering. All of those things are burnt up to the Lord as a burnt offering. Step number 11, the man who's taken the scapegoat out into the wilderness must come back, change his clothes and also take a bath because he's been in physical contact with the sins of the people that have been taken out. Step number 12, there is a burning outside of the camp of all of the bull and the goat's parts. It's dung. All the leftovers get taken outside of the camp and burnt up. And then step number 13, the man who is charged with that responsibility comes back and he too must change his clothes and wash. And after all that has happened, Israel is like, they breathe a sigh of relief. The high priest wasn't killed. Atonement was made for, for the priesthood, for the people, for the place. God has wiped their sins away and washed them clean. You get it, right? It's detailed. It's bloody. It's precise. All of that, all of that process is just so that a perfect and holy God could dwell in the midst of a sinful and wretched, broken people. The point of it is that cleansing is made. For everything. Sin is like this infectious disease that just seems to infect everything that they do and atonement and cleansing needs to be made for all of it. In our household, um, not recently actually, but previously we used to kind of team cook a bit. But since we've had kids, Tash does 95% of the cooking. But before we had kids, we used to share the load a bit and, and Tash and I cook very differently. Tash, we've got some recipe books at home and she'll pull out a recipe book and she'll read step one and then do step one, read step two, do step two until she's finished the recipe. I'll get the cookbook, just go quick skim read, got it, and then just kind of go with the vibe. The result is that Tash is a consistently great cook and I'm either woefully bad or wonderfully good by mistake, right? (laughs) But you know what? Aaron just can't go with the vibe here. He can't just go with the vibe and think, yeah, got to be cool if I just don't worry about the smoke. Don't worry about sprinkling the blood seven times. He's got to follow the steps very precisely. His life depends on it. There's no improvising. When God says there in verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, and he lists all of that detail, he means for that to be precisely done. The heart of the Day of Atonement is this idea of substitution. Substitution, that that first goat has my sin, my 
my unrighteousness on its and it dies for me. And that second goat has my sin taken away. Sins forgiven, sins forgotten. The heart of the Day of Atonement is this idea of substitution, of exchanging places. I remember in high school we had a, a, a substitute teacher called Miss Sally. Elliot might remember her. I don't know if you do. She was an interesting character. She'd come into class and she'd say, take out your books and your writing utensils. I'm like, can you just say pen? I mean, what's writing utensils? It's so many syllables. Pen is easy. Oh, or she'd say things like someone walk in the class and they're chewing gum. She'd say, stop masticating in class. And we'd be like, what does that mean? And, you know, because this jawbone here is your masticator. And she was just, she was an interesting lady. In about year nine geography, I think it was, uh, we had Miss Sally as a substitute. Our geography teacher was away and we decided to be funny to play a trick on her. And so sitting up the back of the classroom, we, in every classroom we had these speakers in the classroom and periodically they might make an announcement and call people out of class. And so I put my head down on the desk and I uh, just pretended to be the, the loudspeaker. I was like, pardon the interruption, staff and students. Would Peter Gibson please report to the deputy's office? Peter Gibson to the deputy's office. Thank you. And Peter Gibson was like, oh, miss, that's me, and took his bag. Up. We got, I think we got about six people out of class before she really noticed what was happening. I, was it just me? Did everyone else treat their substitute teacher that way? It was just like, game on. We're going to give this teacher a hard time. That teacher, she stood in the place of the regular teacher. She taught the lesson on his or her behalf. And this idea of substitution here is that on my behalf, on the, on the behalf of my sin, this animal dies or this animal is led out of the camp. The heart of the Day of Atonement is substitution. Everything about it. Those two goats there, are the very centre of Israel's relationship with God. Their worship centres on those two goats. As I mentioned, the first goat, the goat that has the, its, its neck slit and its blood spilled out, represents that my sin has been forgiven, that God's punishment for sin, which is death, is taken by that goat. And the second one is sins forgotten, sins removed, sins taken away. It's a rich symbolism that you get there transfer of sin onto another. But you know, the Day of Atonement is not just a day of external rituals and steps and rules. There is a real heart element to this day for the people of God. In verse 29, it tells us what the people of God ought to do as all of this is taking place. It says this, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must... Deny yourselves and not do any work, whether the native-born or the alien living among you. Down to verse 31, it is a Sabbath rest. You must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The Day of Atonement, far from just being something removed from the people that Aaron did on their behalf, was a day where they, they wouldn't work, they would fast, they would pray, they would deny themselves. All as a reminder that this is my sin. They were involved in this process as much as Aaron was, albeit symbolically or in their hearts, reminding themselves that that what is happening there ought to be me. It's a a very profoundly deep day for, for them. And the Day of Atonement is stuck on repeat, year in, 
year out, the high priest performs the same intricate, minute details of the Day of Atonement, year in, year out. And it's a perpetual reminder to God's people that this is a holy God who is present in the midst of a sinful people. And something must be done about their sin. He says there, this is a lasting ordinance before the Lord. Now, I don't know about you how you you feel about that when you hear all of the details and all of the stuff that goes into this one day. You think, wow, that is weighty. That is heavy. What, What it took for the people of God to worship him. You know, sometimes I think we take for granted the wonderful blessings it is to be a part of God's new covenant people living this side of Jesus. I want you to imagine for a second that you, um, you've got a time machine because we've all got one of them. You've got a time machine and you jump in your time machine and you go back to Leviticus and you meet Aaron and you hop out of your time machine like is a Bill and Ted's excellent adventure style. You hop out of your time machine and there's Aaron and Aaron comes up, he's got his gowns on and his turban with the jewel in the front. And he says, hey, I'm Aaron, I'm the high priest around here. I guess I'm the holiest person in all of Israel. And once a year, I get to go into that little tent there and atone for the sins of the people. And you're like, oh, hey, Aaron, I'm Matt. Uh, Good to meet you. Uh, I'm also a priest. I'm also holy. And uh, I'm kind of in the presence of God 24-7 every single day. Well, hang on a sec, Matt. You're telling me that you're in that tent all the time, seven days a week? Well, no, Aaron, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, how do I explain this to you, Aaron? It's a bit difficult. But um, you see, this is the temple. I am the temple of God now, and, and God lives inside of me by his spirit. Whoa. You must be really holy for God to live inside you. Well, yeah, I am, but uh, it's it's kind of not because of me. I I didn't really do anything. It was all all Jesus. Like he made me holy and righteous and perfect when he died on the cross for my sins. So Matt, you you must never sin, like ever, if God lives inside of you. Well, you would think so, right? But uh, the reality is that, um, how do I put this? Just imagine the conversation that you would have with Aaron in that moment, like, what it would be like for an old covenant Jew to jump in their time machine and come forward and, and, and look at what it's like for us to worship God now. So often I think we take for granted all of the wonderful blessings of being part of the new covenant. And so what I want to do for the rest of this talk is just walk through a number of things that I think we can fall into the trap of taking for granted. Just four things. And... and um, I think we underestimate so many things here, but this little structure that I've got here, these three of these four things I've borrowed from a guy called Kevin DeYoung. He's a a preacher and an author, and so I've stolen his structure, but the content's mine, just so you know. Just so you don't listen to his sermon and go, I can't believe Matt stole that sermon and claimed it was his. I just stole the structure. So here are the four things. The first one is, God is holier than you think. God is holier than you think. The Day of Atonement tells us that God is a holy, perfect God. There's a strong statement here of God dwelling in the midst of his people. All of this stuff that has to take place is because God is perfectly righteous. 
He's already demonstrated that clearly to God's people. Chapter 16, verse 1 and 2 is Adab and, and Nabihu come and they, they just want to worship God their own way and he destroys them. He's demonstrated that he's holy. You might think, well, hang on a second. I mean, how petty of God to do that? Why would he just, I mean, they, they, they've got the right heart, haven't they? I think that, misun- that, that reveals for us a mis- misunderstanding of how holy and perfect God is, that we don't come to him on our terms. We come on his. He is a perfect, holy and righteous God. These rules that are here in Leviticus 16, um, they're, they're not so much a boundary around God to prevent us from getting to him. It's more so a boundary around God to protect us from his perfect white-hot character. Almost an act of grace that God would be so committed to his people, that being, be so committed to being near his people that he would set up this stuff so he could dwell in their midst so that they could worship him. The high priest cannot just come whenever he wants. The consequence is death. The holy God cannot just be approached there are things that need to happen. The clothing of the high priest there. He, he needs to change into the humble servant's clothing and come humbly before God. You cannot be near a perfect God without substitutionary death and blood spilt. God is so holy that even the holiest person in all of Israel, stripped down to his underwear with a smoke screen, cannot look on his presence. That's how holy God is. God is holier than we think. We underestimate how perfect he is. See, sometimes we think that God is just a better version of ourselves. Couldn't be further from the truth. God is perfect in every single way. There is not a corner of darkness in his character. His holiness is way more holy than we think. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. The presence of God is a greater blessing than you realize. The presence of God is a greater blessing than you realize. The Day of Atonement tells us that God's presence should never be taken lightly. The presence of God is not something to be coy about. One person out of maybe about two million people for about five minutes a year gets to enter God's presence. That is 0.000005% of people for 0.0005% of the time of the year. Now, in case the numbers mean nothing to you, that's very few people for a very little time that get to enter into the presence of God. Do you get it? Like God's presence is a greater blessing than we realize. To be in the presence of God is the most blessed experience. I mean, as Moses comes to the presence of God in, uh, back in uh, Exodus, God's like, take your shoes off, Moses. This is holy ground. We see all of this stuff in the Old Testament. about God's presence is a wonderful blessing. God's original intent was that he would dwell with his people face to face. And the tabernacle, the, the, the tent of meeting, the temple, all of that is God's solution to living with his people in the midst of sin. So it's on the backdrop of Leviticus chapter 16 that a verse like 1 Corinthians 3.16 is amazing. 
I want you to get this. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? That we would be so washed, so clean, so sanctified, so righteous that God would dwell in us. That's phenomenal. That is absolutely incredible. The temple, the Holy of Holies, is now here. The presence of God is a greater blessing than we realize. I wonder if you get the privilege of Hebrews 10.22, which says, Let us draw near. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Those two words, draw near. Israel had to climb a mountain to draw near to God. And we get to come freely. Do you get how mind-blowing James 4.8 is that says, come near to God and what? He will come near to you. Friends, the presence of God is a greater blessing than we realize. That is phenomenal. That God would dwell in us, that we would be able to relationally draw near to God freely without the without. Uh, having the necessary sacrifices and blood rituals that took place because Jesus has done it. You know, often, um, and this is an ongoing discussion at Anchor, I feel like Steve Asalo and I are constantly talking about the presence of God and what it looks like in the gathering, now at the gathering. I, I just want to correct a couple of misunderstandings here. Sometimes I think that we are so unaware of God's presence now that it would be staggering for an old covenant worshipper of God to look at our lives and think, you don't even know what it's like. You don't even know how good it is. God would beckon us to draw near to him and we don't do it. We don't take him up on the wonderful privilege it is to just draw near to God. Yeah, I think sometimes our conservative theology tends to react against other theologies and say things like, Well, when you come to church, you don't come into the presence of God because God's everywhere. It's not like it was Aaron and the the priests going to the temple. They would come into the presence of God. It's not like that anymore. And so somehow the pendulum swings so far that God's not in church anymore. Sometimes, like it feels like that's the case. God's not here. Don't ever talk about the presence of God amongst the gathering of his people. But I think what happens in this context here is that God is present because he's present inside of all of us who worship Jesus, and there is a different experience of what it looks like here to experience the presence of God. I think God loves the fact that his people gather to worship him, to sit humbly under the word. God is present. We need not throw that out because we're reacting against some form of theology that we don't like. And so we've got to figure out, and I don't think we have figured it out, but we've got to do the hard work of figuring out what it looks like to be God's people in his presence now in a new era, the era of the Spirit. In fact, Steve and I were just discussing this yesterday. Steve thinks very deeply about this stuff. He had this really helpful illustration about the sun. When we're standing outside, the sun is out, the sun is everywhere around us, but sometimes we're not really aware that it's there until maybe we, we step in and there's like a, a glimmer hits us through a door or through a tree and, and we're stunned by the light. 
or we go outside, we spend too much time in the sun, we get sunburned, we're aware, you know. So there's this constant presence of, of the sun everywhere, and, and yet we're so oblivious to its presence. And sometimes it's like that for us and God, that we're, we're just so unaware that God is present with us. The presence of God is a greater blessing than you realize. Thirdly, your sin is worse than you imagined. Your sin is worse than you imagined. The fact that Israel lived around the tabernacle in tents meant that their lifestyle, their lives, their sin polluted God's dwelling place. It's like this infectious disease that just spread everywhere and polluted everything. That's why the holy priest, uh, the high priest has to make atonement, not just for the people, but for the place as well. That's why he's sprinkling blood all over the place. It's a symbolic cleansing of all of the elements that took place in Israel's worship. Because sin is serious. The sin of Israel led to a detailed, continual shedding of blood, of sacrifice, day in, day out, year in, year out. A constant reminder to God's people that your sin is serious and the consequence of sin is death. Friends, our sin is worse than we imagined. And it's ultimately my sin that led Jesus to the cross. Where his blood would be shed, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, sometimes we think that sin is dealt with by rehabilitation or we put people in a correctional facility or we think education is going to be the thing that puts people up when really what God says is sin is dealt with by death. It's a, it's a big deal to God. Sin is a big deal to God. I hope that you see the extent of what it took for Israel to worship God in this context. How good it is then to live on the other side of grace where Jesus has paid for that. We, we just need to pause and think on the cost it was for Israel to deal with sin. Our sin is worse than we imagined. But in light of that, the grace of God is more amazing than you thought. The grace of God is more amazing than you thought. When we see how holy and perfect and righteous God's character is and how hazardous his presence is and how grotesque our sin is, it makes the good news of the gospel all the more wonderful and amazing, does it not? When you put the gospel on the backdrop of all that blackness and sin, it looks incredibly amazing. Israel lived with a constant reminder, day in, day out, including the small details of their lives like the, the cups that they drank out of and the utensils that they used and the mold on their walls and the type of cloth that their clothes were made of. All of this was a reminder of their sin. And so how good was it that moment where Aaron laid his hands on the scapegoat and confessed their sins on it and then the man came and took that goat and he walked it out of the tabernacle and then out past Simeon's tent and Judah's tent and Reuben's tent and all of the other tribes, tents, and out of the camp and out into the wilderness. How good it would have been for them to see that sin is gone. Sin has left the camp. It is dealt with. It is done. What a wonderful, freeing picture that is for God's people. To know that he makes a way. 
that sin is dealt with. And the picture of that scapegoat of sins forgiven and sins forgotten, that picture is a picture of Jesus. Jesus is our scapegoat. He is the one whose blood was shed. He is the one who was taken out of the city of Israel and crucified on the hill at Golgotha. He is our scapegoat, taking our sin upon himself to deal with it so that we might enjoy the blessings of being in God's presence. Friends, in Jesus, your guilt and your shame and your sin is gone. It has been been gone. Just picture it, walking out the building and being taken away. It's gone. And so when we live, when we dwell in guilt and shame, Essentially, what we're saying is, God, I don't think what you did with my guilt and shame is sufficient to deal with it. And so for those of you who wrestle with guilt over past sin, with shame over past mistakes, know this this morning, that despite the fact that your sin is worse than you can imagine, the grace of God which deals with it is more amazing than you realize. God's grace covers that, deals with that, pays for it, so that we don't have to live in guilt and shame anymore. It's dealt with, it's done, it's gone. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, God says, I remember your sins no more. It's not like he stashes it away and stores it up to bring it up that next time you sin again and says, ha, you did it again, see? God doesn't do that. He can't bring it up. I remember it no more. I will not recall that sin and hold it against you ever again. Your guilt Your shame, your sin is gone. It's gone in Christ. I want you to read, uh, I'll read with you from Psalm 103, which reminds us of the extent of God's grace and love and forgiveness. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as east is from west. How far is east from west? Well, maybe if you circumnavigate the globe, you'll figure out it's, I think it's about 12,000 kilometers. I'm not sure that's his point here. I think he's saying at whatever point you walk around the globe, you never get closer to east from the point of west where you stood. God has infinitely removed our sins from us. As far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As far as the tabernacle is from the wilderness, God has taken sin away, dealt with it, removed it. You know that that last sin that you came to God and you confessed? God says, what was that? That sin again? Or that sin that you just repeatedly keep confessing time and time again? And God's like, can't remember it. Can't remember that sin. All I see is Jesus. All I see is his perfect righteousness. What sin? I see the blood of Christ covering it. That's what God sees. The grace of God is more amazing than you thought. The sad reality is that for so many of us, we become unamazed with the amazing grace of God. We're unamazed. We we become complacent. It becomes familiar to us. So for those of you who are feeling 
stale in your faith this morning. For those of you who look at the cross and think, yeah, heard it before. I want to remind you of these truths. God is holier than you think. Perfect. Righteous. The presence of God is a greater blessing than you realize. Your sin is worse than you ever imagined. But the grace of God is more amazing than you think. Remember those truths and pray that the Spirit of God would press them deep in your heart and give you fresh eyes to see the cross again this morning. Let the writer of Hebrews preach the gospel to you this morning. This is what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, that book that just wonderfully takes so many pictures of the Old Testament and makes them relevant to us in Christ. This is what it says, Hebrews 9, 11. When Christ came as high priest... Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly unclean. How much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? How much more so that we may serve the living God? That's the gospel. Isn't it good? Isn't it good that Jesus has done that? That Jesus is our high priest advocating on our behalf before the Father. That he offers himself as the sacrifice, enters into the most perfect holy place and does it once for all. Breaks open the curtain, tears it from top to bottom so that the presence of God is now open for anyone who comes in faith to God. Hebrews says we approach the throne of grace now with confidence. You know the tradition, maybe this is just an urban myth. I don't really know. I tried to do the research on it but couldn't find it. It's not in the scriptures, but urban myth or tradition says that they used to tie a rope around the high priest's waist, that if he did something wrong in there, like sprinkled it on the east, west instead of the east and died, they could pull him out. Because what would, the next person would have to go in and he would die and there'd be a pile of dead bodies in the Holy of Holies. And Whether that's true or not, I don't really know, but that's a bit of an urban myth that the high priest would have a rope tied around his waist and yet Jesus goes in once for all and then bursts the Holy of Holies open and says, Welcome Come into the presence of God. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of an animal, not the blood of a bull or a goat that cleanses us outwardly, but his own blood that cleanses our conscience, transforms us from the inside out. Jesus is your scapegoat. Sin symbolically transferred onto him. That song that we sing, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin. Ashamed, I hear my voice calling out among the scoffers. Jesus paid for my sin to cleanse our consciences and sin has been dealt with, has been taken away for good. Friends, that's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done, this picture of blood and animals, all of that is fulfilled in Christ who comes and does it all so that we could now worship God, be reconciled to Him, come into His presence, enjoy that blessing, 
We get a little foretaste of that now, but I've got to tell you what, we've got no idea of how good that will be in the future. The gospel is good news. You're here this morning and you have not yet come to put your faith and trust in Jesus. You need to know that one day you will stand before a holy, perfect and righteous God and your sin will be held against you. You will have to deal with that sin. But if you stand before a perfect, holy and righteous God and the blood of Jesus covers you, atones for you and deals with your sin, you stand righteous. You stand perfect by faith, by trust that his death was sufficient to pay for your sins. Friends, if you've not done that this morning, today is a good day to receive the grace and mercy of God for yourself. As we worship Jesus in this time of response, maybe pray to God and ask that he would forgive your sin and transform your heart. And we would love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray for you about that. But what we don't want you to do is leave here this morning and be unaffected, unmoved by the grace of God. So if today is the day for you, then friends, please do business with God. We're going to respond to this wonderful gospel in symbols. The symbols that we've just been looking at in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement for for the Jews is our Good Friday, where Jesus' body and blood was broken and shed for us. And so as we come forward to these two stations on my right and my left, and you dip the bread into the grape juice and eat it, remember Remember the blood of those goats and bulls that were shed for the forgiveness of sins. Remember Jesus, whose blood was shed for your forgiveness, for your sins. And eat and rejoice and celebrate in the gospel. Invite the band up for worship. Pray. We're going to respond to this good news. Father God, we thank you. We thank you this morning that that we even get to talk to you right now, that you hear. That that is possible because of what Jesus has done. We thank you, God, that right now we bask in the glory of your presence, that you are here. Help us appreciate that. Help us appreciate the cost it took for you to make us your temple, your dwelling place, your tabernacle. Father, where there are people who are living in guilt and shame, remind them this morning that it is dealt with, it is done. Sin is gone. Help us to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Father God, would you remind us afresh of the gospel this morning? Pray for those who are feeling stale and dry, I pray that you would open their eyes to the wonder of the cross. And Father, as we walk out of this building and go into our weeks, we ask that you would use us for your glorious purposes, your people, your people saved and redeemed, to be sent to a city that so desperately needs you. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen.